This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of Popcorn and Compliance, a podcast where, with Jay Rosen, we take a look at movies from the compliance perspective. But before we get to our podcast, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? You, would you like to explore some compliance topic? Well, I have founded the Compliance Podcast Network, and I'm looking for new podcasters. If you've wondered how you might start a podcast, please listen to our sponsor, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. And as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business. And One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. In this podcast, Jay and I end of a 22-episode series of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Spoiler alert, we do talk about the movie, Those Who Die and Those Who Don't Die. I know you will enjoy this podcast. Thanks for listening. Popcorn and Compliance is an offering of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. We are here for another episode of Popcorn and Compliance. I have with me Mr. Monitor, Jay Rosen, and we have... With us, the compliance guy. Yes, Sean Friedland, uh, Marvel Universe expert and geek extraordinaire, has agreed to join us for this podcast because we're going to talk about Endgame. And I will say right now, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about the entire movie. So if you haven't seen it, you might want to listen to this podcast after you've seen it. So gentlemen, uh, first of all, welcome. And I'm really looking forward to this podcast. So say hello to the audience. Hey, everyone. Hello, audience. uh, I'm glad we could assemble on this beautiful afternoon. Excellent. So I thought we'd start off by, uh, Jay, if you could uh, sort of tell us uh, a little bit of the summary of the movie, uh, how it shattered every record there was that could be shattered, and uh, what it might mean going forward. Sure, Tom. Uh, This takes me back to my Hollywood roots. As some of you know, I'm a recovering screenwriter, and uh, one of the best... uh, I think uh, games that everybody does here in Hollywood is look at the grosses. And now that we're all plugged in and you get like a million texts a day, um, you know, initially people were blown away by the almost $50 million that it made on the Thursday night preview. And uh, I'm going to just go into some of the numbers right now. We won't get hung up on them, but according to box office mojo, uh, the weekend global release broke over 20 individual records uh, after last week's uh, weekend's opening, Avengers Endgame is on track to become the highest grossing movie in history. The superhero film's success isn't only great for Disney's news, but it's given their stock quite a nice little kick. Captain America, Iron Man, and Thor's latest outing generated more than 
1.2 billion, and that's billion with a B, in global ticket sales in its opening weekend, including 350 million at the domestic box office, shattering its prequel by more than 100 million, which was Avengers Infinity War. Avengers Endgame broke, as I said, more than 20 top box office records its opening weekend, and we can link to the uh, link to box office mojo so you can see some of that. The movie builds on a strong start, and it could ultimately generate 3.15 billion in theatrical revenue worldwide, including, according to Jessica Reef Ehrlich, an analyst with Bank of America. Endgame could be positioned to generate 2.7 to 3.5 billion in ultimate worldwide box office, potentially the largest film at all time. Should it surpass Avatar's 2.8 billion? She wrote in a research note. Her financial model suggests that the movie's box office takings could translate into 945 million in profit for Disney after it gives its cinema partners their cut. Combined with 298 million from other revenue streams such as TV licensing, Blu-ray sales, and other tax and other payments, Disney's Adventures Endgame could end up with a profit, that's a profit, not a gross, of $1.06 billion, and Disney earned $2.5 billion after tax profit last year, ending September 2018. So in other words, Disney's eventual profit from this one single movie could equal 44% of total earnings from all of its movies, shows, musicals, cruises, theme parks, merchandise, toys and videos from last year. And that's before all other sequels coming from Disney this year. We have a live-action Lion King. We have a live-action Aladdin with Will Smith playing the genie. And we also have um, uh, Toy Story 4, which I'm very much looking forward to on my birthday on June 21st. So those are the numbers, gentlemen. Um, Any observations on your part? I've always loved box office weekend totals. And it's amazing to me that, you know, when the first superhero movies came out, not necessarily the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but uh, the first X-Men or the first Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire, those numbers broke records when they came out, records that were originally set by Titanic and movies like that. And the opening weekend box office totals were somewhere in the the mid-100 million range. Uh, Like 150 million was perhaps the three-day opening record, something around that. And now everything just is so far ahead of what those numbers were for this movie to have a $350 million domestic opening weekend. I mean, it's hard to believe that's even possible reflecting on what the opening weekend totals used to be. The fact that it exceeded its predecessor infinity war by a hundred million, you know, where are they finding a hundred million more dollars of people that want to see this movie and haven't seen the other ones? It's, it's truly incredible. So to that point, Sean, uh, one of the treatises I read said that uh, even with the opening gross, that was only uh, 11% of the movie-watching public in both the United States and Canada. So apparently there's quite uh, room for growth. J.U. significantly forgot to mention the final part nine of the Star Wars Nintology will be uh, released in December as well. So uh, Disney's probably going to have a very, 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 very good uh, year. What does that? Uh, what do you think that does for the entire industry? Does everyone from the the person slinging popcorn all the way up to Robert Iger uh, benefit from this? I think this date has been circled on the calendar for a long time. Uh, box office tends to lag 
the prior year for the first quarter. Uh, if you noticed, besides maybe Silence of the Lamb that came out on Valentine's Day over 20 years ago, there are not a lot of big box office participants coming out in January, February, March. It's usually a chance for the studio to clean out some old inventory and put it up there. So I think um, box office is lagging about 14 or 16 percent coming into this weekend. And, uh, you know, with this 350 million domestic, it's uh, probably picked up about half that deficit. And, uh, you know, what you're seeing now, and I wanted to get your guys takes on this, is that with Disney's acquisition of Fox and now the X-Men coming into the fold, one can only hope that there'll be X-Men versus Avenger movies. But it seems like Disney really is only one of the few participants out there that has the scale and scope to make these three to four hundred million dollar tentpole pictures and release them. And if you look at the majority of Disney's schedule, which I just enumerated, they're all sequels, whether they're cartoons going into live action or live action going to cartoons. But I, I think we're getting into an inflection point here. And uh, Disney has just been masterful with giving the uh, the Marvel folks the runway and the ability to put together a 22-episode saga and build to the uh, weekend box office that we had. So I think it's pretty impressive, and we haven't seen anything like that in Hollywood for a while. Sean, uh, I think a, an appropriate introduction to your role uh, in this podcast is that you were part of the group that actually crashed the uh, Ticketmaster or uh, whichever ticket site you were on trying to get the uh, preview ticket that you ended up having to buy in person. You were there, I think you told me, at 9.30 uh, Thursday night to see one of the first viewings of this show. And I guess uh, what I really wanted your uh, thoughts on, how does this movie, Endgame, not only fit into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but really end, as Jay said, a 22-picture uh, run? Yeah, Tom, that's right. When tickets went on sale for Endgame, the earliest kind of launch of the pre-sale advanced tickets, I have AMC A-list and I was trying to buy tickets on AMC's website. And I mean, the movie literally crashed their website, their mobile app. Every ticket buying site on Fandango, for example, had either a long wait to buy tickets. I think on Fandango at one point, the, the wait was an hour long. And on AMC, the, the site just broke essentially. Uh, I, I'm Fortunately, you know, work from home full time and live across the street from a movie theater. And I, you know, eventually gave up on technology and just walked across the street and bought a paper ticket for the movie because I couldn't risk not having the opportunity to see it opening weekend. And an interesting thing about the demand for this movie and, you know, Jay, maybe the uh, the hold that intellectual property has on our, our pop culture kind of life today, AMC actually in some theaters in New York stayed open 24 hours for the entire weekend, 72 hours straight from Friday morning to Sunday night to accommodate the sheer demand for this movie. Uh, so people were going to see it at one, two in the morning and every, every showing was sold out, which contributes to that, you know, massive box office total and why these studios continue to rely on IP um, to build out these movies, right? Cause it's a reliable investment. Um, they know that people are going to line up, to, to spend time with these characters that they have relationships with already and they could really tell some cool stories and create these really amazing movie experiences. In, in terms of this, you know, as you said, the culmination of 22 movies that led to it over the course of 11 years, um, starting with Iron Man in 2008. So in Endgame, we essentially have, you know, as you would expect for the culmination of this really long, um, you know, 
thoughtful, strategic plan that Marvel put in place. Um, there were essentially three phases of movies. Phase one, which started with Iron Man back in 2008 and really introduced us to the core Avengers characters of Iron Man, Captain America, the Hulk, and Thor, and then eventually expanding in phase two and phase three into more of these secondary and kind of tertiary characters in the Marvel Cinematic Universe um, from beloved people with a smaller kind of presence like Black Panther to people like Guardians of the Galaxy, who casual fans might not have even heard of before the movies came out and really, you know, became beloved through the movies themselves as this kind of comic set of, uh, you know, intergalactic explorers. As far as how do all these things tie together, you know, it's really incredible, not just what they were able to do over the course of an 11 year, really long term strategy, which I'm sure any, you know, compliance professional could appreciate uh, a good long term plan, but also just in, in in the way they told the story, not just weaving together all these things that have happened over the course of 11 years with a lot of references and callbacks to these major plot points, but also in the, in the th- story itself, um, in Endgame, you know, to undo some of the effects of what happened in Infinity War, where Thanos, the main villain, essentially collected all these uh, Infinity Stones, these really powerful intergalactic gems, each of which have these unique properties that enable him to control space and time. Um, you know, when he snapped his fingers at the end of Infinity War, 50% of the population around the world, around the galaxy, uh, disappeared and the plot of this movie was essentially undoing that that massive catastrophe and in doing so they had this really clever storytelling arc where they traveled through time back to earlier movies from the cinematic universe of the this kind of marvel stretch and watched themselves as younger people doing things that we saw from these earlier movies and there are these really great moments where depending on how big of a fan you are to Marvel, you know, whether you're a casual fan, whether you've seen all the movies, whether you've been reading the comic books, there are all these really, really great kind of nods and Easter eggs. So just in terms of connecting the dots, Tom, this is going to take a deep breath, but essentially every single character from all 22 of these movies either makes a pivotal role or slight appearance in Avengers Endgame, And then there's also a bunch of callbacks and and kind of brief interactions with characters that we haven't seen in a while um, that you probably wouldn't have expected. I wouldn't have expected them to be there. And Jay, maybe maybe you did. And Tom, maybe you did. But we see Red Skull, um, who I think we last saw in the first Captain America movie. Natalie Portman, who we last saw in Thor The Dark World. Rene Russo, who's Thor's mom, who we also haven't seen in over a decade. Tilda Swinton from Doctor Strange, John Slattery from Mad Men, who is uh, Iron Man, Tony Stark's father, who we haven't seen in probably a decade, Robert Redford um, as this kind of undercover Hydra agent, Peggy Carter, all these really kind of fringe characters who either appeared in the comics, appeared in the Marvel TV shows, or were minor players in historical kind of Marvel Cinematic Universe movies show up. And it's just like, the most star-studded cast on paper when you're watching the end credits at the end of this movie, you know, how are all these people in one movie? It's truly incredible. And 
beyond just that level of homage and kind of reference and, and callback and how it connects all these different stories with all these different characters, you have some really deep cuts that if you're a Marvel fan, whether it be someone that's really into the movies and reads more about them online or has been reading the comic books for a while that happen in this movie, that are those, those moments in the theater when the crowd cheers and you're like, what's going on right now? Um, Captain America holding Mjolnir, which is Thor's hammer, is kind of this like iconic event in the comic books that happens. And I'm sure there are a lot of people that have been waiting to see this image in, in, in the movie of Captain America holding Thor's hammer. And that happens. Um, there's a great callback to an elevator scene in a Captain America movie where Captain America enters an elevator with a bunch of undercover Hydra agents. Hydra is this kind of terrorist kind of very similar to Germany, world war two group um, with evil intentions and in, in this original scene, he beats up all of them in the elevator and it's really funny. And in this kind of uh, reference back to that scene in this movie, they do a great job uh, touching on a, a storyline from the comic books where Captain America is undercover as a Hydra agent, essentially as a villain. Um, and he kind of walks into the elevator. You think they're going to do this scene again with the big battle. And he leans over to Robert Redford and whispers in his ear... Like, I'm working for you guys. Don't worry about it. Hail Hydra. And that was one of those things in the comic books. There was a page of Captain America saying, Hail Hydra, that people were like, how could Captain America be a bad guy? And now it happens in the movie. And if you're into that and you've been paying attention, these are moments that really have immensely satisfying payouts. Um, so they did a great job tying it together at the most basic level, connecting the plot from all these different movies into a holistic story. Um, with little Easter eggs from the movies and then really deep cuts for the comic book fans. So Sean, in terms of really tying it all together as a bow in the end, did you feel like, uh, did you feel satisfied when you walked out? I did. I, you know, there, there, there are a few different endings, a few different kind of payoffs for the different characters in the movie that I felt were all kind of deeply satisfying. Um, you know, whether or not you like the way they got there, I thought the time travel itself, um, was a little confusing. It was fun. Um, but the, the logistics of time travel in any movie, anytime you try to explain the science behind time travel, you could always lose a few people. Um, but satisfying conclusion. I mean, we have Thor flying off with the guardians of the galaxy for hopefully, uh, as guardians of the galaxy, the next, uh, movie in that kind of series, which will be really fun. Great chemistry between those cast members. Um, Iron Man, my personal favorite character, um, you know, spoiler alert, if, you, if you're still listening, uh, dies and has this really kind of beautiful arc over the course of the movie that we'll talk about a little bit more. But his kind of death is done in a, in a really beautiful way. And they have this really fitting um, funeral and that kind of ties together his entire arc over the course of um, these 11 years. Obviously, Iron Man was the first Avengers movie. And then Captain America, who I think has a, a very beautiful uh ending tom i know that you're pretty fond of that if you want to if you want to talk about it a little bit i thought that they really you know there's probably never been more pressure on a group of people to nail a movie uh the expectations for avengers endgame for all of the years they built up to it for all of the money invested in it for the impact it would have on disney's bottom line and, and everything else the anticipation was at a fever pitch i really think that they delivered the goods and i've yet to hear anyone that was truly unhappy with it you could nitpick sure but Overall, definitely one of the strongest 
uh, entries in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So uh, I wanted to talk about some of the technical aspects, uh, being um, a very technical-minded geek when it comes to films. And I would have to say that the opening scene with Dear Mr. Fantasy from Traffic was, for me, one of the top-notch parts of the movie. That's one of my favorite songs. I don't listen to it nearly as much as I should, uh, but it was playing in my head the rest of the movie. My wife had to tell me to shut up and not sing it um, while we were watching it. Uh, And that really set the scene for me. But uh, uh, as everyone who listens to Popcorn (laughs) and Compliance knows, I'm a huge fan of tracking shots. I love tracking shots. I've loved tracking shots since movies from the 20s. And the tracking shots now with uh, obviously using drones can provide uh, a perspective, obviously, uh, 30,000, 20,000, 10,000 feet, but it also allows a sweeping view. And so the um, scenes at Stark Enterprises uh, near the end of the movie, I thought were were particularly stunning. Uh, The scene where Thor goes to... um, uh, visit the uh, long lost colony in Norway of his people uh, were just uh, great shots. Obviously, the special effects were top notch. The um, the colors uh, of particularly uh, in the last battle scene, there was a scene where the Thanos's st- uh, spaceship, his primary warship, turned its guns off of planet Earth to the heavens. Uh, and because someone was coming and that someone was Captain Marvel. But as the cannons that went off, it lit up the clouds in a way that I thought was just eerily spectacular. And so I really enjoyed uh, the special effects. Uh, but I'd like to say a couple of words about really one of the points Sean ended with, uh, or at least alluded to, which was the acting. Uh, you had uh, an incredible uh, cast of actors, and no one actor uh, could dominate the entire movie. Uh, there were some that obviously stood out, but because they were given less screen time as the prime focus, I thought they packed in even better acting. And uh, Paul Rudd as Ant-Man uh, was as neurotic as a superhero can be. I thought it was much more neurotic than the uh, Ant-Man movies. Um, The acting by uh, Thor uh, channeling his inner Big Lebowski. Uh, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more uh, in a moment, but uh, that was uh, great to see. He he really had that down. But I wanted to focus on Robert Downey Jr., um, not as Iron Man, but as Tony Stark. Uh, I've been a Robert Downey fan for a long time. He's had his own struggles. Uh, his personal struggles around drugs and alcohol bring a level of knowledge to the movie watcher um, that gives uh, really, I thought when the original Iron Man came out, uh, uh, an interesting interpretation to the early Tony Stark in that movie uh, before he became Iron Man. And knowing what I know about his struggles, uh, to see him grow to not only the man he became, after the uh, the wipeout of half of civilization when the movie started, but to the father he became, uh, and really have that when we seen we obviously we saw hints of that in Spider Man, um, but here it was his daughter, uh, his natural daughter, not an adopted daughter, uh, Peter Parker son rather, uh, or a favored uh, younger person, Peter Parker, but uh, seeing a um, 
Tony Stark as a father, I thought really uh, gave a level of poignancy uh, that Robert Downey Jr., Jr., when you know his backstory, I think really adds to that that shows how far he's come in his own personal journey. And that led to the death scene. And, and John did correctly note he does leave us in this movie. So, um, But I thought the, the death scene was understated but understated in a way that made it more powerful for me. Uh, now, uh, his wife was there, um, and uh, she uh, was with him at his side, but it was, uh, for me, an incredibly powerful scene. Sean also alluded to one of my favorite, personal favorites, was uh, the scene where Captain America uh, goes back in the past and uh, finds uh, Peggy Carter is beloved from the first Captain America movie. And there was a scene, they were dancing. And if you saw the first Captain America movie, you will recall he promised her a dance before he got in a plane that uh, he had to uh, sink under the uh, Arctic some 70 years ago at the end of World War II. So seeing them have that dance, I thought was uh, very poignant for me. But the acting for, for literally everyone uh, Josh Brolin as uh, Thanos had a level of intensity um, when he uh, and he used the word inevitable a lot. Uh, what I was thinking about there was I'm a huge fan of uh, the Universal Frankenstein series, uh, and he was the classic mad scientist. Uh, he was going to kill half of the galaxy's population to put it back in balance. And uh, that trope of the mad scientist has been around for a long time. And so I really saw a lot of that, but his acting in that was, uh, I thought, outstanding. So each of the actors, I thought, because their screen time, not that their screen time was less, but their screen time as the the focus was uh, particularly uh, powerful. Scarlett Johansson, uh, I thought was as anguished a heroine as, as one could be and really showed that, uh, as well. So I wanted to shout out to the actors for their acting, uh, in this, uh, because, uh, it wasn't that perhaps less is more, but less screen time to me amplified what they brought as actors, uh, to each, each one of these. So, uh, anything you guys wanted to throw in on, on that part? Well, Tom, I think when, when you're when you're talking about the acting, it's easy to think about a superhero movie, and I don't like that kind of stuff. I'm going to dismiss it. I'm not going to go see it. I'm not into you know special effects and space battles and all of this. You know, that's not my kind of movie. But in reality, because of the way studios and intellectual property works these days, a lot of the time, you know, superhero movies are Trojan horses for really powerful human stories because that's how movies get made now. So if you want to make a movie about a certain topic, it's easier to do it if it has some intellectual property tied to it because there's a better guaranteed return on that investment. And what happened in this movie is it's three hours long. It's really packed to the gills with plot, but there's really three portions. The end of it is this big, you know, amazing intergalactic battle with every superhero to ever, you know, exist in the Marvel Cinematic Universe on screen. And in the middle, you kind of have this time-traveling comedic little journey but in the beginning the first hour of the movie is about grieving and loss and failure and it's dealing with the fact that at the end of infinity war these people who are the most powerful and successful superheroes to ever you know do the do the job failed and uh it was really really bad and you know people they love passed away and all these terrible things happened as a result and 
it would have been really easy for them to gloss over that and kind of just get right into let's fix it mode. But they spent the first hour of the movie really grieving and reflecting on the damage that was done. And I thought it really gave these act- actors, you know, Chris Hemsworth, um, Robert Downey Jr., Scarlett Johansson, uh, Jeremy Renner has a really powerful scene to start the movie. You know, it gave them the opportunity to flex those acting chops by giving them that human personal kind of hour long arc before they were like, OK, let's go fix it. Oh, that's a great observation. And I felt that way, uh, felt that way as as well and when I thought this is certainly a downer way to start. But then I realized uh, that they this was grieving and they did have to go through this and superheroes can grieve and they can fail. And when they do fail, they have a they feel a greater responsibility because they are superheroes. And that's not something I typically feel. Uh, so whatever I might feel when I let someone down, uh, they probably feel it exponentially more. Any any thoughts from you, Jay? Yeah, I wanted to uh, go in a little bit more on the acting and uh, look at a, a couple people who were not in the original movies who found their way into the cast. And, you know, one of them is uh, Mark Ruffalo as Hulk. And if we look back, the first Hulk, Tom, that you and I probably remember were, was uh, Bill Bixby slash Lou Ferrigno on TV. And that was in the... Uh, late 70s and the early 80s. Uh, in 2003, Ang Lee did a version of Hulk, which was uh, part of a universal deal. And Eric Bana, Bana, B-A-N-A, uh, an Australian actor who has uh, done a lot of uh, action movies and has done some uh, very serious dramas, just wasn't quite able to capture uh, the necessary uh, slash between comment comedy and drama that you need for the role. Then Edward Norton did it in The Incredible Hulk in 2008. And then he was expecting to come back uh, in a subsequent uh, movie and he was not invited back. And instead he was replaced by uh, Mark Ruffalo. So um, it shows that um, casting. And also there was a different roadie in the original Iron Man movie and that roadie got replaced by um, Don Cheadle. So it shows that the people who are making these movies are not afraid uh, to mix up the process if they're not getting what they want. So I think if you look at this, if we want to take a little bit of a, a compliance look at this, it's really important to get the right team. And the vision that Sean referred to over these 22 movies gave uh, the producers the confidence to go with what they wanted to do to get the right actors who would tell the right story and get us to invest uh, 10 plus years of our life. So uh, kudos to them and kudos to Mark Ruffalo for uh, being the best Hulk in this series. So, gents, uh, now I'd like to turn to uh, one of the Marvel characters that was personal to you for whatever reason, and maybe uh, spend a few minutes uh, talking about that character and why that character was particularly significant to you, either over the course of this series or in this movie. So, Sean, you want to start us off? Yeah, uh, I chose Iron Man. And, uh, you know, I chose Iron Man because he was always one of my favorite superheroes growing up. And really, he started this whole journey, right? Uh, He was Iron Man in 2008. I remember seeing it. I was in college, believe it or not. And I remember the exact theater. I remember who I went with and where I sat. And it was such a kind of bold proclamation of like this superhero era that we were about to embark upon. Um, 
and it was so fun and he was so, so perfectly cast and it really just, you know, I, I loved the Marvel movies, um, you know, since then and I had high expectations going in as a reader of the comic books and watcher of the cartoons growing up. And to me, it was just like, wow, they really nailed this. This is so cool to see this on, on a big screen actually exist. Um, and in the movie, you know, in Avengers Endgame, Iron Man is really kind of holding on his shoulders the consequences of every decision that's happened throughout the, the series, throughout these kind of 11 years and 22 movies. Um, he feels this kind of burden, and, and, you know, I can't personally relate to it to the extent that he does, but we've all kind of done things that we regret in the past or wish we can go back in time and maybe change a decision that didn't go our way, and it weighs on us sometimes. And to me, you know, in, in the first Avengers movie, um, he feels responsible when – you know, the aliens essentially and this kind of horde of villains attacks New York, um, you know, as commanded by Thanos. And it weighs on him. He, it's in his mind throughout the next, um, you know, movies and the years to come. And really, you know, as much as a team battle and the Avengers are a team, he feels this personal obligation responsibility um, to fix it and to do the right thing. And, you know, there's this fun moment where, the rest of the Avengers team are trying to figure out how to time travel to go back in time and fix this problem. And Tony Stark alone, uh, you know, in his house, messing around with his daughter in the background, you know, figures out how to travel through time. And he does it so casually that, you know, it's kind of this brilliance that Tony Stark and Iron Man's character has as this kind of genius billionaire character. Um, And I've certainly, you know, stumbled upon whether intentionally or unintentionally some good ideas toiling away at uh, at night alone that have worked out pretty well. And in this case, you know, Iron Man truly does figure out how to travel through time, puts these kind of wheels in motion. And, you know, throughout this kind of journey, he, you know, there is such kind of emotional depth to his character and what he's trying to do. He wants to, um, you know, bring Spider-Man back who died in, in the movie before who, you know, disappeared when Thanos snapped and he feels his personal responsibility um, for that loss and, and really wants to, to fix it. When he travels back in time, um, he encounters his father and, you know, Tony Stark, Stark's father, for those of you who don't know, who, who started Stark Industries was a very career oriented man, um, died young, you know, through the, through a series of events that you ultimately learn was, um, uh, Bucky Barnes, uh, you know, Winter Soldier kills Tony's father in, in the 70s um, because he was, you know, creating some weapons that uh, the villains in this movie in the past didn't want to get out. All these different pieces are, are coming together and Tony is kind of getting redemption with his father and having that moment with him that he never really had as a kid um, through his time travel. He is, um, you know, trying to repair these mistakes that Spider-Man uh, you know, going away kind of weighs on him. He's trying to create a world where he could still have this relationship with his daughter. Um, and, you know, he's married to to, Pe- to Pepper Potts, who is Gwyneth Paltrow's character, his longtime assistant love interest. Um, so there are just all these really deep, long-term payoffs and emotional connections that are weighing on him that he really wants to kind of do the right thing. And really, you know, whether it's him as an individual or the Avengers as a team, you know, he feels the responsibility to fix it. And ultimately at the end, you know, he has the chance and he gets to do it. And his closing lines before he dies, as he's, you know, facing Thanos and he essentially pulls a little switcheroo on Thanos's, um gauntlet, 
gets it, snaps his fingers, and undoes what Thanos did. But the sheer kind of galactic intensity of these Infinity Stones and the power that they come with, um, you know, kill him essentially when he sacrifices himself to fix everything that went wrong. And his closing words to Thanos, Thanos says to him, I am inevitable. And then Tony Stark rebukes, I am Iron Man. And I am Iron Man are the words that he kind of says, those are his closing words in Iron Man 1. Uh, and then, it, you know, fade to credits. And, you know, for a long time, he was battling with this kind of personal identity crisis. Am I Iron Man? Am I Tony Stark? What does it mean if I'm Tony? What does it mean if I'm Iron Man? I can't protect the world and raise a daughter and have this kind of relationship simultaneously. So for him to kind of accept who he was and lean into it as hard as he could to the point that he dies, but ultimately saves everyone he cares about. Um, you know, it was just a beautiful piece of storytelling that I really thought uh, the Russo brothers, the whole kind of team involved in putting this movie together and Robert Downey Jr. as an actor really, um, you know, hit a home run with. Jay, who'd you pick? Well, I want to kind of pick a, a level of actors. And I, I think there are three. There's um, Jeremy uh, Renner, there's uh, Mark Ruffalo, and there's Scarlett Johansson. And, uh, you know, when we look at this film, a lot of these actors may have been stars before or certainly are stars now. But um, what I really appreciate is um, I look at these three as more independent actors uh, that they started off in the indie film world and for them to come in, they really care about each other. And I think um, Black Widow really is the emotional connective tissue that keeps all these people together. And I was really um, struck when she basically uh, would not let Jeremy Renner uh, sacrifice himself. And she took the, uh, the dive into that chasm and, and had to kill herself. And uh just the sacrifice that she gave again, it's kind of similar to Tony Stark sacrifice another sacrifice here, but it also weighed heavily on her that they were not able to save the world the first time around. And I, I really found that she kind of left the movie too soon for me. She was one of the first major losses. So um, as that trio, I really appreciated them and I appreciated uh, Black Widow the most out of that. So I'm going to take mine in a little bit different direction because I'm going to pick Thor in this movie, but I'm going to pick him for a different reason. Not in my earlier uh, references to the big Lebowski, but in his just self-wallowing pity. And uh, I'm not sure he was an alcoholic, but he was certainly drinking way too much. And the whole scene where he's in New Asgard and – um he explains, I think, to uh, to yeah, uh, the Hulk, who's in the uh, interim phase of both Hulk and Bruce Banner, uh, as he is in this movie, uh, why he can't uh, participate in the new Avengers attempts to go back in time and uh, reacquire the stones and change things. Uh, he completely blamed himself for what happened. And he wouldn't allow himself not to not to not grieve, but to to move through or uh, work through the process. He had friends with him, uh, friends with him who were introduced to us in the last uh, Thor movie, Ragnarok, and uh, they were enabling him, and they were 
uh, they said, uh, no, you can't say Thanos' name here. Um, here, have another beer. Uh, and so it really struck me that uh, when someone uh, really wallows in that self-pity and they start drinking and they go into that depression, uh, you can go far down that hole of depression. Uh, this was not a big Lebowski moment. Of all the things I thought of the big Lebowski, uh, depression was not one of them. Uh, he uh, he had a different uh, outlook on life, uh, even if he did like to, to tip back a scotch or two. Uh, nevertheless, um, and the physical transformation uh, they put in Chris Hemsworth uh, was pretty pretty stark, if I can use that phrase. Uh, pretty stunning uh, how uh, beer bellied he had become and out of shape he was, even as uh, the god Thor. So that really struck me. Uh, it was a great portrayal of uh, someone, like I said several times already, wallowing self-pity, not willing to get out of it. And uh, it takes some, usually some dramatic event, whether that's an intervention, whether that's a whack across the head or, or psychically or other, uh, to move forward. So that really struck me about Thor in that uh, those uh, few scenes. And that scene was probably three to five minutes. Uh, long, uh, but it was a very, very, very powerful scene to me. So, gentlemen, we probably rolled through um, uh, most of our time here, but uh, Sean, as I mentioned to you, we end with a rating, and it's uh, based upon uh, popcorn that you could eat. So, Jay Rosen, do you have a, a popcorn rating for this movie? I've got the big box of popcorn, and I'm taking my refill right now at the counter so I don't have to come out during the three hours. So it's two boxes of popcorn for me. So I was going to rate it as an overflow, but uh, for those who have not yet seen it, even after our spoiler alert podcast, uh, this is a three-hour movie, so you do need, as Jay suggested, two boxes to start with. Uh, I will say uh, I never once thought the movie slowed. I never once thought, oh, my gosh, how far are we into it? Uh, in fact, when it was over, I went, wow, that was about the quickest three hours I can uh, remember. But my highest rating, two boxes of popcorn. Sean, do you have a rating? I do. And, and Tom, you're totally right. I mean, three hours of this versus three hours of Titanic. Uh, I don't think they move at the same speed. Uh, I give this a, a, a full bucket of popcorn. It's not overflowing. There's not two of them. I'm going to go with one full bucket. I, I thought it was really good. Um, it really delivered on everything they built towards, and there were some great moments. You know, I think I liked Infinity War a little bit more. I wouldn't say it's my favorite movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, but, you know, aside from a few nitpicks here and there, it was pretty awesome, and I would highly recommend it uh, to anyone, really. I mean, it's it's a generational event on screen and you know to miss it would be uh a shame it's it's pretty awesome well there you have it ladies and gentlemen for the 89 percent of americans and canadians who did not see the movie this weekend uh we hope you'll get out there and uh, help jay's gross uh uh all boats rise in los angeles so gentlemen this has been a ton of fun i know we were all looking forward to the movie and we were frankly all looking forward to this podcast i hope we can do it again thanks tom thanks tom Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Popcorn and Compliance. As you can tell, all three of us really enjoyed this movie. And if you have any questions about it, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Sean Friedland's at sean.friedland at hanzo.com. And Jay Rosen is at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. 
I hope you will join Jay and I again and perhaps uh, Sean again at some point in the future. We certainly enjoyed having him. But Jay and I will be back for another episode of Popcorn and Compliance. Popcorn and Compliance is an offering of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.